come on, nothing makes sense here. We know this was unprecedented, unwarranted. Uh, it was just plain wrong. And I think when you couple it with what, uh, think about last week in a five day time period. We had the president's personal residence raided. We had the phone of a sitting member of Congress taken, and we had 87,000 IRS agents unleashed on the American people. And then you think about, oh, this was so sensitive, we waited 18 months to get it. No one believes these folks, but they see their government being turned against us, we the people, we the citizens. And that's the frightening part. So when President Trump says, turn down the heat, for goodness sake, they should, because turning down the heat means following the Constitution. That's the concern here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm Jerry Dade Sexton. I'm here with Nick Houseman. Nick Houseman, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. This is a jammed, packed show. Uh, later on, we're going to be welcoming Will Bunch from the Philadelphia Inquirer and talking about uh, his great new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, which uh, talks about how a lot of our political problems and cultural problems are caused by college. We have a lot of things that have already hit the the, the, the cutting room floor, Nick. There's too much legal repercussions in our political environment. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is being targeted in investigations in Georgia. Turns out Trump's lawyers accessed a bunch of restricted uh, voter data mm -hmm. left and right. But Nick, first things first, we got to talk about the Espionage Act. And, <laughs> and we have to talk with the Ray de Mar-a-Lago. It never, ever ends. Well, by the way, I, I don't know about you, but the Will Bunch interview just had me conjuring up the image of just John Belushi wearing the college uh, sweatshirt, right? That's what I'm thinking of. All that's wrong with it, uh, which is a great we, Everyone definitely make sure to check out that when it comes up a little bit later in the pod. Uh, but yes, the Espionage Act. It's really um, what a, a great title for like a movie or, or a movie of the week, maybe even. Yeah, and we'll get into what that means, what's going on here. Uh, just for the record, the Espionage Act is kind of a shitty thing in general, which we'll get into. But to go ahead and get everybody on the same page, uh, again, we have to talk about the search at Mar-a-Lago of Donald Trump's um, absolutely gaudy, stupid resort residence, where the FBI took boxes upon boxes of material. We also learned today that they took three of his passports, which... I don't have a passport. Three seems like too many. One's, one's expired, Jared. Don't forget. He has an expired one in there. That's one. The other one, though, is a you know a diplomatic passport you get when you are working in the government. Huh. So, you oh, know, that's great. We can that's explain wonderful. But by the way, let me ask you this, though. How many reasons would there be for law enforcement to legally take somebody's passport? I think it's a little bit of a fear that somebody might... The moosh. <laughs> just, just got his plane all gassed up and fixed up a little bit, maybe. Uh... And and why would Donald Trump possibly leave the country? Uh, and and then there's a reason, which is um, <laughs> it has turned out that in his possession at Mar-a-Lago, illegally, uh, he had in his possession nuclear secrets, uh, signal intelli intelligence, which is intelligence gathered uh, from around the world. Uh, Trump, in true Trumpian fashion, and this is coming from the I worked on this story for a year and he just tweeted it out guy, Trump just gave it to the world, a warrant that revealed that he was being investigated, one, for obstruction, which he's always being investigated for obstruction. We'll get to that uh, more so in a minute, but also for violating the Espionage Act. And for you sports fans at home, each violation of that brings with it up to 10 years. This is such a serious thing. They're actually starting to fingerprint these documents to see who has touched them and who has come across them. 
We're talking about 11 sets of documents, including four that are top secret, which, um, Nick, I believe that's the highest that it gets. Yeah. Well, there's there's the um, yes, the three other letters that are uh, compartmentalized, something or other, whatever. But, yes, it's bad for your eyes only kind of stuff. It's so absolutely stupid. And, and just so we, we, again, are all on the same page, this is based on the Espionage Act of 1917. We have not heard yet if that means that the former, I'm, by the way, Nick, I'm getting ready to say a sentence that is absolutely insane. Are you ready? That does not mean yet that a former president of the United States has been engaged in active espionage. That uh, this was part of the uh, Wilson administration in 1917 around World War One. Uh, this basically uh, has been used left and right. Uh, this is what Eugene B. Debs got hit with, Emma Goldman got hit with, the Rosenbergs, Ellsberg, you name it. Uh, but it does appear as if the legal jeopardy that Donald Trump is in is, um, how do I put this, significant. Oh, yeah. And you know how we know that he actually did have nuclear-related secrets in, the, in those vaults? Just like you mentioned, he, he ruined your you know, scoop a while back. He mentioned it in the context of Obama having nuclear secrets. So that, to me, basically tells me that he has them too. He's saying, well, he also has them. He didn't use the word also, but the idea being that like he was trying to already tie that in and say like, you know, nuclear documents were taken from another predecessor. That to me means that he, he has them as well. So he lays his cards on the table the entire time. It's embarrassing. And uh, if he had a good lawyer, then, you know, he wouldn't be saying this stuff. I'm sure DOJ is writing all this stuff down very carefully for, for their, their uh, case. Well, let's let's say this, and we're going to talk in a minute about what we think is going on and how this occurred. But let's let's make it very clear: Donald Trump is um, an idiot and always has been. Um, has always telegraphed what he's doing. I actually have this quote here, Nick. Uh, the the I, and I got to tell you, if I personally were being accused of violating the Espionage Act and holding on to nuclear secrets beyond my time in the White House, I probably would not post it for the world to see, quote, President Barack Hussein Obama, keep going with that, King, kept 33 million pages of documents, much of them classified. How many of them pertain to nuclear? Word is lots. I mean, number one, more or less, uh, a, a confession of, yeah. of of violating the law. Second of all, I love the Trumpian thing of people are saying. Yeah, that's always been wonderful. It's just an absolute mind palace type situation for this guy. But you're right; he couldn't even help but further incriminate himself and more or less admit, "Yeah, I kept nuclear secrets. What are you going to do about it?" Right. And 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 though, you know, remember the reporting is is could be considered iffy, I suppose. But again, the, the thing with this particular subject, and this goes with from Merrick Garland as well, is no one's going to get out in front of something without having it completely locked down, right? No one's going to report on potentially nuclear secrets if it's not. You know, they got three sources, they're whatever they're, you know, they locked down. So, um, but, but we don't need all the sources anymore because yeah, he will just tell you what he's doing. Um, I, again, I, I don't even know if it matters. It doesn't matter to anybody that supports him, I suppose. But we have to get into the, uh, there's so many things to get into, but we need to start talking about how they're defending this because this is like, it, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall here. It's absolute madness, and, and we're going to get into that. First, I want to talk, Nick, and, and I have here, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of these, trying to unravel what has happened here, how we've come to this moment. I have five scenarios that I think 
explain what has happened here and how we've arrived at this moment. And I, I want to go through them. Uh, these are in no particular order, except for, I would say, probably ranging from uh, as innocuous as possible to as um, insidious as possible. Otherwise, we're not talking about possibility, but I would love to hear from you. And by the way, everybody listening, feel free to comment on this as well, what you think has happened here. But Nick, I, I, I've got these five scenarios that I think one of them probably explains or a combination of them. Scenario number one, this resulted from carelessness. Basically, we all know this, Donald Trump is not a serious person. He has surrounded himself with unserious people. Undoubtedly, they didn't take seriously the cataloging and or the moving of documents. This very well could have been uh, caused by a lot of idiots doing a lot of idiotic things. How does that strike you? I mean, what's the, the Murphy's Law, right? It's most likely that is the top of the list. He was so cavalier, and by the way, it's such a nice way to put this, cavalier with, with uh, top secret documents throughout his career as the president that it's not surprising like he would just throw shit into boxes they would after the end of the day he would rip it up and then throw it away and they had to grab it and tape it together uh he would tell the soviets uh, israeli secrets he would tweet out iranian uh you know images from uh, satellites it was horrible and you know they already had to stop giving him top secret information for fear that he would just blab it out so, you know, remember, in the, in the chaotic days before, you know, uh, Joe Biden took over the White House, like, I, I have a feeling he didn't think he was going to have to leave. So they didn't pack, and nobody wanted to mention it to him. Uh, Sir, you know, we're going to leave here in a couple of days. You probably should start putting your clothes in some, uh, you know, suitcases. So I have no doubt they threw a whole bunch of shit in a whole bunch of boxes and then shipped them down to Mar-a-Lago and figured they'd work it out later. I got to say, as somebody who hates packing... And uh, and who has procrastinated that many a times Uh, that that strikes me as being at least partially true. I think a lot of these scenarios interlock with each other, but undoubtedly there's shit that ended up at Mar-a-Lago that shouldn't have ended up at Mar-a-Lago simply because these people didn't take seriously their responsibilities, didn't care about the laws and flaunted them. I, I, I think that there is at least part of this that could be broken down into carelessness. And when you, everything that's been coming out, I've been reading so many threads from people who've had this kind of uh, classified, uh, you know, uh, clearance. It's like any one of those papers needs to be taken back immediately after he's done looking at them. And at some point, and this is because from the top down, this is the way he runs his stuff. And this is why he should never be allowed anywhere near uh, any kind of public office again. Was that, no, that Donald broke Trump down. never should have been allowed to take a tour of the White House. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so as, as a result, like that, that systematically after about a year, whatever, they were trying to keep up with that. But they ended up, as it happens, you walk in shit long enough, you start smelling like it. Everybody there just sort of probably gave up and we're like we're just going to maybe keep them in some boxes and hope that someone else figures it out later now that explains a chunk of this again we're talking about 11 sets of information four of them are top secret that doesn't specifically explain the four top secret sets i'll just say that fair enough and, and certainly the nuclear stuff that that should never have been out see the, the, the daylight and that brings me to scenario number two and I think that this helps explain part of it simply because let's be completely honest. Let's 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 call this what it is. Donald Trump is a slobbering idiot and and just as craven as it comes. There is a possibility that some of this was Donald Trump trying to keep these things. And I know this sounds ridiculous because it is as mementos. 
something that he could say, oh, look, at one time I was able to touch some of the most sensitive documents, some of the highest level, you know, jewels of U.S. intelligence and, and defense. There is a possibility that he just wanted to take the hotel towels with him. You know, when I share love letters with people, I would like to keep them, right? It's a, they're very important to me and reminds me of the moments that I've shared with other people intimately. And so certainly if Kim, Kim Jong-un, you know, had sent me these this letters, I would want to keep those without question, Jared. I, I think so as well. And this this actually goes along quite a bit with Donald Trump and, and the way that he approaches the world, which is this is a person who more or less sees it as his own playground. Why wouldn't he be able to take anything with him at any time? Right. He was the president of the United States of America. Well, you know, wait until they look into where all this money went that they raised in different packs, Jared, because we know that for a fact that he thinks that that's his stuff, too. Yes, and, and that brings us, by the way, to scenario number three as we start getting even more serious, which is the possibility that Donald Trump took some of this information in order to hide evidence of his crimes, his own betrayals, the things that he did as president. Well, maybe I'm not sure this is the right order to mention this, but, you know, Cash Patel has been out there saying that it's it's that, but he it's all the documents they have that they're going to get the FBI with. You know, yep. this is like they have blackmail in the FBI. That's what they kept with them, because if they're going to turn the tables and they they're going to sit on this for like, I don't know, another couple of years, maybe until it ages the right way. But, um, you know, it, that's a possibility, I suppose. Right. There's some stuff that would be very damning that would that would make them look really bad. I, I could put that in one of those bins. Well, and I would go ahead and say that history also shows us that Donald Trump does this kind of stuff. He flushes notes. He destroys things. He has a long, long history of destroying evidence that has been asked for in investigations left and right. He's actually one of the most like well-known destroyers of evidence. Yeah, I mean, you know, are there notes to, um, you know, people in Saudi Arabia? It's like, you know, hey, it's too bad what happened to Khashoggi, you know, but hey, make sure we, you know, we're sending those uh, those warplanes to you. Don't worry. Like, yeah, or, or, you know, the other thing that everyone has been saying, though, is... Um, Oh, yeah, the notes from Helsinki, right? Like him and Putin's notes right. that, he's, that he took. Uh, I, I don't know. It, 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 it still makes you wonder why, if that's the case, why would he keep them? Why would he, why would he have destroyed them? Well, and, and I mean, that's also part of it as well. Is And this is scenario number four, which is the possibility that he's been harboring this information for clout. And basically, this ranges everywhere from taking people on tours of Mar-a-Lago, which he undoubtedly does. I have to imagine how many people has he shown this to? Just opened up the door and just said, look at my boxes, look at my boxes. And like that, but on top of that, basically keeping a semblance of power of the presidency. So you have people left and right, whether it's the Saudis, Russians, I mean, and shit, you name it, he's a free agent. Anybody that he could use that as some sort of leverage to keep his relationship going or to maintain financial or political ties to, whether that's keeping loans going or investments going or any of the corruption he's part of, there is a possibility that this more or less is just sort of like a MacGuffin that's been shoved over here and gives him somewhat of a semblance of power remaining from the office. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, it would be great to be able to just sort of show people. Now, don't forget, uh, you know, the, the DOJ bent over backwards to allow him to return this stuff. And I'm still, by the way, what happens if it come if it come out that they got to June and then they got all the documents and they didn't have to go raid it? Like, would we still be okay with that, having him do that and having him delay and, and obfuscate and then, like, finally, like, give it up? Like, 
I suppose he would have. He would have been like, all right, fine. They're not going to prosecute him. He gave them all back, I guess. But um, remember, the notion of what made it so, so alarming was, A, nuclear documents, I'm sure is pretty much exactly what they, when they really realized that, that they still had them. And then B, they had they, the surveillance cameras. They had surveillance uh, on the, on the, the, the storeroom. Uh, they subpoenaed them. They got them. They watched them. There's some shit on there. I'm telling you, this is going to get a lot worse uh, in the next you know few weeks, and th- we're going to find out probably exactly what they saw on, the, on this footage. And it's going to be Cash Patel coming out naked from the. I don't know what he's going to do. With something about him and in there and taking documents out. It's going to be bad. Nick, much like opening the door to the room where you keep stolen U.S. intelligence and nuclear secrets, it's now time to get to scenario number five, which I like to call the Blagojevich. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I was late on that one. Did, I, did, did we hear it well enough? There we go. <laughs> and much like the former governor of Illinois, who believed that he had something golden that he didn't want to give up for free. I mean, I, I've got this thing, and it's fucking golden. And I, I'm just not giving it up for fucking nothing. I'm not going to do it, and, and I can all. Here's the thing, Nick. We have to now have a discussion. We have to open that door, we have to peer in, and we have to discuss the possibility that the former president of the United States of America, who, by the way, is one of the biggest con men, grifters, selfish, like immoral people that we have ever seen in American culture, that he saw the ability to cash in on American secrets in order to enrich himself and i i will get into this and and the 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 ramifications of it um i gotta tell you right now at this point in in mid-august of 2022 nick i i would be shocked because obviously it would be one of the greatest crimes in this country's history probably the greatest really um but I wouldn't be that surprised at this point. I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, as a being a uh, Illinois being my home state, uh, to explain a little bit what that text was or that quote was, because Blagojevich was the governor. It's Obama's fault, Jared. You realize this, right? It was all Obama's fault. He did something called um, getting know, elected when, president. Of the United yes, States getting elected America. president of the United States. So that means he had a, you know, the Senate seat was now suddenly open. And I have to tell you, even at the time and even now. Blagojevich did nothing that that every other governor would have done. And he just said it out loud uh, mistakenly on a phone call. But of course they all want to leverage that open seat to get stuff. And you know what? Like, who knows? He went to prison. He served his time. He got caught, yada, yada. But um, I was a little bit, um, you know, torn on that one only because, you know, that didn't seem... That's that, that to me is the definition of politics. Maybe it's because I'm from, I'm from Chicago and that's how we do things there. But geez... Man, the Illinois just got very thick on this podcast. That was a lot. That really, really was. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I could do my Chicago accent if you want, but um, I, so don't, I don't know. I'll, I'm telling you, I don't think this. you, you know, it didn't seem this bad, but it's bad. And it's a nice, you know, it's a nice through line. I like what you're doing there, Jared, with you making it from Blagojevich right to Trump. It makes perfect sense. Man, I feel like you just had to, like, give up your California driver's license. <laughs> just using that accent, that's wonderful. Uh, two hours I, waiting in line today for my renewal of my license. In, in, by oh, the that way. was today? Yeah. What we, wow. Yeah. Well, so there you ahead. go. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I, Nick, I, I think there's a very real possibility that this has happened. And, and I'll tell you why I think there's a real possibility here. 
One, Trump's entire world is predicated on the shakiest of foundations. It's not, you know, the Trump org is not real. It basically has been uh, coasting along and shambling along based on like corrupt money, Russian oligarchs, uh, loans that come out of nowhere, corruption that has been laundered through all of his properties. I, I have to imagine that the first moment that Donald Trump saw classified material, the very first thing that went through his brain besides, am I supposed to read all of this? Second of all was, these things are almost literally priceless. And I think to understand who he is and how he views the world is to understand that this is possible. I'm having trouble picturing that scenario. He's got these boxes, or oh, okay, because it's a long game at that point where he's like, I'm gonna, I'm going to take these after I lose an election and have them with me. I mean, are you trying to describe a scenario where someone's gonna come and like give him a suitcase of or a briefcase of cash and he turns over documents? Is that what we're talking about here? I don't I don't think it's coming and giving him a suitcase of cash because unfortunately we have entire systems that are dedicated to making this stuff work you can just donate and launder money wherever you want also i don't know if you know this there's like an entire universe of untrackable like currency out there with bitcoin or you name it it's about investing in properties investing in real estate which by the way for those who don't know real estate particularly donald trump type real estate is one of the main ways to launder money gotten through corruption and exploitation I, I don't know if it's a suitcase or if it's continuing a relationship with the Saudis or whatever it is. I, I know that Russian state media, and maybe they're doing this with tongue firmly planted in cheek and a wink and a nudge, mm -hmm. but like they've even said, you know, like we've already seen this stuff, you know, obviously he has it, we've seen it. I just think it is more possible than it isn't. I think it's more than a flip of a coin because if he has it, I know who he is. I know his psychology. I have to imagine he at least considered it if he didn't act on it. Okay, I mean that that's reasonable. Although you know the right will just come after you for for even saying that. Um, but okay, I, I could see all of that. That that does make sense. I mean, certainly the if it's again if it's nuclear secrets, like that is the most valuable of all prizes there because yeah. I'm sure Russia doesn't have the most technologically advanced weapons probably about as much as we do and i'm sure if they could get their hands on some of these things they could reverse engineer stuff i mean yeah okay so so yeah i mean the bottom and here's the thing that's what's interesting is that you know they're so stuck on in their defense that um that these these documents were declassified so and, and by the way it, it doesn't matter the law doesn't care what the classification is but their argument then goes well you've never sent anyone to prison for lower level documents that are not classified so why would you do it here i mean that's that's the that's how bad it is for them in their argument is that you know okay so we did it it's bad but like it's not so bad that you're going to be canceling us to prison for it because of some sort of weird precedent well and and let's talk about this defense and and before we do i just want to point out what what we're getting ready to talk about is not at all organized crime boss material nick i mean like it it, it has come out now that <laughs> that Trump reached out apparently through uh, intermediaries <laughs> to uh, Merrick Garland and said, quote unquote, whatever we can do to help because the temperature has to be brought down in the country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. Be also, real shame, he, said, Jared. <laughs> he says, what can I do to reduce the heat, which just happens to be a synonym for the heat on a person from law enforcement. It's so weird, Nick. It's almost like this is a guy who has spent his entire lifetime just 
almost saying the thing outright, but he knows how to avoid the actual prosecution. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, that's a nice country you got there. Uh, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. Uh, I, I, I want to point out, by the way, this is a pretty incredible thing that Trump posted. Um, okay, quote, just left a large gathering of people and all they could talk about was the complete and total stranglehold that the radical left Democrats have over the DOJ, DOJ and FBI. It shouldn't be that way. Nobody goes after BLM and Tifa or the rest, despite murder beatings and burning down large sections of cities. A very unfair double standard. They definitely won't attack the home of a former Democrat president, nor should they. It is all out of control. Great simmering anger. Nick, he's literally at this point, and I know that we shouldn't be surprised. He's more or less saying, hey, come after me at, at, at your expense. I mean, like, that's who this person is. Or on the flip side, he goes, hey, if you just stop going after me, then I'll call off all the violence. I mean, that's sort of what he's kind of saying, too, because... You know, we know there's this huge spike in threats now. He released the the documents, uh, the the um, that the DOJ left for him with the fucking FBI's you know agents' names on them. You know, doxing them basically. It's it's um, yeah, he's dealing in in the way he's always dealt with, and it's it's right out of uh, you know, Kingpin the movie. Or not, not sue me, not the movie Kingpin, the character Kingpin in in uh, what he's Daredevil. that guy Daredevil. Yes, that that whole universe. So. Let's go through these excuses, Nick, because I got to tell you, this has just been like shotgun. You know what I mean? It's just like firing off and seeing, I guess, what quote unquote sticks, even though none of it has. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week. It starts off with the obvious one, which is the witch hunt. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a total witch hunt. There's nothing going on here. Immediately he says, well, guess what? Obama did it, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is an incredible thing. By the way, they, they're not—they're not hammering Hillary enough, but you know why they're not? It's because all of their sound bites from then would be make them look so foolish now. They, you know, they demanded she was she'd be locked up for something similar to what you know he she did is what he did sort of in some weird way, kind of not really, but nonetheless, they're not hammering it with the Hillary comparisons. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I have. And, and it's funny. It's almost like they feel like that has sort of lost its like, you know, carte blanche. Like there's no power left in it because they they've tried every. I mean, listen to this, Nick. This is incredible. This was a statement from Trump's team, which um, it, it, I want to I want to break this down rhetorically. It's amazing. Uh, they said that because these documents were present at Mar-a-Lago means they couldn't have been classified. And for those keeping track at home, that's Richard Nixon saying if the president does it, it can't be illegal, which is the mindset. As we can all relate to, everyone ends up having to bring home their work from time to time. American presidents are no different. President Trump, in order to prepare for work the next day, often took documents, including classified documents, from the Oval Office to the residence. Do you believe that for a second that Donald Trump ever carried a briefing or a dossier away from the Oval Office? Do you believe that? The, the phrase, in order to prepare for work the next day, Done. is doing so much work here. here. Have we all forgotten that he would spend about eight hours a day rage live tweeting uh, Fox News? You know, and then sitting in the dining room with, you know, that's all he was doing. You know, Daniel Dale, I think, would used to re re release the daily presidential schedule every day. And there was like, there would never be anything on it. Uh, what was it? Executive time. Remember that? They would have like three hours of executive Nick, time. Nick, the people who briefed him, 
And by the way, they had to brief him on shit like what we're talking about now. In order to get him to pay attention, they had to put his name in every paragraph in larger letters to ensure that he kept paying attention. This isn't a guy. This guy has never done his homework. Not once in his entire life. He wasn't taking things home. They didn't end up just in his papers. What a load of horse shit. So that also brings us into... The dumbest excuse in all of this, which tells you, by the way, and I think that we both know this and the people listening know this, Republicans know that he broke the law. Republicans know that this was absolutely a legally necessary search and seizure. The Republicans know this is a losing hand. Even Fox News is starting to move away from him. They're going to use the outrage in order to foment anger, which, you know, we've already seen a shooting outside of uh, outside of an FBI headquarters. But they know this is wrong. And now the only excuse they have, Nick, the only way I can describe it is um, weak sauce. Here's uh, here's Cash Patel. And this is a key fact that most Americans are missing. President Trump, as a sitting president, is a unilateral authority for declassification. He can literally stand over a set of documents and say, these are now declassified. And that is. Woof. Isn't that great? It reminds me of something, actually. Oh, is there the next one? It reminds me of something. I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> it's it's the dumbest thing in a long line of dumb things. If that's the best that they've got, Nick, that it's it's almost like the transubstantiation you know, of, 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 of the wafer and the wine. Like oh, wow. the president can just stand over it and do it and it's done. It's declassified. Right. Which is also kind of nonsense because by the way, if that's the case and Joe Biden, you know, while he was in the bathroom one morning could just sort of like reclassify it in his brain and then poof, it'd be right classified <laughs> again. Right. So that's all he has to say. It's, it's so ridiculous, but let's not take our eye off the prize here. It doesn't, matter if it's classified or not these materials were stolen and they needed to be returned they gave them they bent over backwards in january february june and they still wouldn't give them all back so this is an interesting you know uh, brew that they've been you know mixing up here in the pot because we know he doesn't read these things he doesn't have the you know the the mental acuity to understand what the, the these these briefings are. They 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 kind of stopped giving him the presidential daily brief at, at some point. Well, can we can we yeah. say something real fast? And this goes this goes to what you're saying. I I don't know about you, Nick. If I got elected president, and by the way, do not elect me president. It would be a giant mistake. Okay. You don't want it. But if I were. I would be so excited to read this stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah. Like you. You've just been given the keys to the vault. Like you at least uh, maybe, you know, if you try and tell anybody about it, like, but like you would want that. This is a guy who didn't want to be president of the United States, except for to, to ride around in the car and wave at people. This is a guy who has no intellectual curiosity whatsoever, uh, no interest in the job or anything that goes along with it. The idea that this guy is declassifying things or he works too hard and that's why these mistakes are made. It is just the worst bullshit imaginable. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen in a criminal. If they ever got to a criminal courtroom, like they just it would, it would be laughed out of the place. That's the thing. He's never never gotten that far no one's ever gotten them into that situation but uh yeah it is it is embarrassing that this is what they've come to and um it just reeks you know of of how guilty he is with this stuff it's 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 frightening 
It, it, it really is. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. We've joked in the past that, like, you can defend Trump in court and say, your honor, my, my client is an idiot. You can't say, your honor, uh, my client is Donald Trump and he was just way too invested in his job. That doesn't work. But I got more seasoning in this, in this pot because I forgot about this. There's a couple of a very uh, contemporaneously reported, uh, and, and no one's pushed back on this. There is reporting that people saw Trump himself sort of secretly packing these documents. And I'm willing to, to accept that as fact because no one's ever pushed back on that. And this is way back in months and months ago this reporting came out. He never he's never packed a box he's in his life. He's never packed a box in his life. So let's let's take this for what it is. Let's he's just pretend he really was. Right. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, he literally and he's secretly doing this. He won't let anyone else see this. So let's just say that's true. Okay, now he does know that he's got documents. I you know what? Maybe you just convinced me without even saying anything that he has his intention was always to try and, and, and get something from this uh, uh, from other countries I, or, or you know what I mean maybe maybe that has to be the only answer if he was doing something he had never ever done before which would be like you know a menial task like like packing up papers well I'll, I'll say this and, and to put a put a bow on it you know just because I, I can't I can't not add to this conflagration more than we already have but like you know what I'm going to be looking for in the next few weeks or next couple of months it, it, are, are certain names going to pop up in, in terms of Mar-a-Lago? Who possibly could have been around? Your Steve Bannons. Uh, one in particular I'd be really interested oh, to hear about. Will Eric Prince show oh. up in this conversation? I, I, I mean, listen, I, when you move into this new territory where the presidents of the United States of America possibly could be like <laughs> – carrying out these types of crimes like when you enter that new frontier like i mean literally all bets are off i mean he he, he took the proverbial shit in the oval office and this oh. it sitting there uh in the carpet like there, there, that's no other way to put it and uh i don't know if you're ever gonna get that smell out of there well and again just to put a finer point on this is what happens when corruption and greed and hypercapitalism reaches its end point, or at least its new evolutionary stage. You get to the point where like old ideas of duty, honor, patriotism, loyalty, those things go out the window and you suddenly say, again, with Blagojevich, I've got this thing, I'm not gonna give it away for free. That mindset, I mean, it's it's infected the presidency before, but this level is 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 really really uh, disturbing. Well, we're going to talk about this in the next one. I think about the, the the real dangers we're going through with the local election boards and, and even governorships being taken over by election deniers. But a thought hit me. I, I leave this. We'll we'll leave it here as a cliffhanger. Perhaps is is it not democracy if people elect election deniers? Ooh. Right. If that's what the people want, that's what they get because they elected. And then that affects the entire country because these governors could change the election. But that, but you know what I mean? That's that's interesting. Is this really the way, you know, is this democracy functioning? Man, I don't I don't like that point. OK, we're going to move on now right. and we're going to go talk to Will Bunch uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. All right, everybody, for the second time, uh, one of our best guests that we've had, Will Bunch, who is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of the new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It, an issue near and dear to my heart. I can't wait to have this conversation. Will Bunch, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Jared. Hey, Nick. How's it going, guys? 
So I am so excited to have this conversation because, Will, and I, I think we agree on this, I, I really, truly believe that higher education, who gets to uh, enjoy it, who gets the spoils of it, and who doesn't, I think it's one of the biggest issues in American politics, and we don't really frame it that way. I was so happy to find out that you were writing this book. Can you um, just go ahead and give the audience a little bit of an idea of, of what you got into in this book and why you thought it was uh, such an issue to tackle? Yeah, you know, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's essentially why I wrote this book, you know, is, I mean, you know, my main, my main focus in writing as a columnist is, is covering politics. And it's been clear for a number of years, but especially, you know, I think the last five years, six years since Trump was elected president in 2016, that the real, the real fault line in American politics is college attainment. And, and the thing is, you know, you read, you know, you read the political analysts in, in the big papers, and, you know, they'll, they'll mention this and they'll say, you know, you'll see stories saying the real fault line in American politics now is isn't class, it's not income, uh, you know, but it's educational attainment. And what I always found frustrating is nobody really answered the question of why. Why would that, you know, why would that be the thing that would divide people? And so, I mean, ultimately, that's the question I tried to answer in this book, you know, to try, to try and understand um uh, why, why, why this is the fault line uh, in America. And uh, I think like you said, I mean, uh, it, it boils down to, you know, the, the, you know, I mean, college became a big thing in this country right after World War II with the GI Bill, you know, followed, followed almost immediately by the baby boom and uh, during a prosperous time, the idea that college now really was the vehicle for the American dream, that if you, you know, that if you wanted to, live a better life than your parents, which was, you know, kind of the original American dream. Now the only way to do that was getting a college degree. And, um, but ever, ever since that time, I think, I think there've been two questions that have hung over higher education, which is, you know, what is college for and, and who pays for it? You know, whose, whose financial responsibility is this? Uh, you know, is, is, is it a public good? Uh, you know, like we've, you know, no, no, nobody in America seriously, well, other than other than John Bircher types, but m most serious people in America don't question that K through 12 education is a public good. And yet somehow we went from a situation where higher education was close, close to being a public good, you know, in those post-war years. You know, I mean, tuition, there was no tuition at some schools like University of California and, and other schools, most, most other public universities were ridiculously affordable um you know so we went from that situation to to what we have now which is just a privatized boondoggle um where you know families are told that if you, you know it's not even a matter of your kids doing better than you necessarily but if you want your kids to do as well as you've done if you want your kids kids to stay in the middle class they're going to have to get a college diploma and the only way to get it is through this system where uh, you know, attending four years of college is probably more than you you've been able to save up. So you know you're going to have to you're going to have to borrow the money to make the difference. And yeah, hey, it's like capitalism. Hey, it's an investment, right? Where you know you're investing in yourself by taking out this loan. You know, you're, you're leveraging you're leveraging yourself. You know, your future in, your earnings by taking out this loan. But uh, uh, you know, so so but earlier generations didn't have to confront that. You know, they baby boomers for the most part. My generation for the most part, 
uh, you know, did you go out into the world with which college loans undercutting their income? And of course, you know, as we've seen, you know, as college just becomes more and more unaffordable every year, the loans get bigger, the monthly payments get bigger. And, you know, since, since the economic upheavals of 2008, the guarantee of, of getting that job that's going to be sufficient to pay those loans back has, hasn't always been there for millennials or, or, or now people in Gen Z coming along. And, um, uh, uh, and, and this, you know, when you talk about the college loan crisis, you're just talking about what the people who are able to get access to college go through. And, you know, remember, despite all the, all the gains in college during all these decades, still only 37% of the American uh, adult population has a bachelor's degree, which means that 63% don't have a bachelor's degree. And, um, uh, but, you know, as, as we've defined is we define college as the American dream, but then we also define college as a meritocracy that, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's a great opportunity. It's open to everybody, but how, how far you go in that system depends on your own merit, uh, you know, which is, which is the story we tell ourselves. It's really, it's really not like that exactly, but, but, but this is the story. But, but when you buy into that story, then you're telling the 63% of the people without diplomas that, they're, they're merit deficient in some ways, right? That they that, that, that they that they are somehow lacking in worth in some way, that they weren't able to have the gumption or the energy or the drive to figure out how to get that diploma. And uh, it's it's a huge source of, of resentment for people who are in the working class. You know, the thing that fascinates me about the, the book itself and this idea of college over enough time is that, you know, what you mentioned earlier is, is the immigrant experiences. You want your kids to have a better life than you did. What did you discover about tracing generation after generation of going to college and having it be affordable in the beginning to where we are now? Is it sustainable? Does that even exist anymore? Are people, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who probably pulled themselves up by their bootstraps uh, immigrant wise and, and, and had big businesses, made a lot of money. Their kids can't get there in the climate that it is now. So I wonder what you discovered out of that ideology and that notion of like, what is it? How does that affect the, uh, the kids who are going to college now? Uh, well, you know, a couple things, you know, I, th I think uh, if you go all the way back and you look at the GI Bill, you know, which was this huge boost for uh, returning veterans, you know, most of whom were middle class people who, who might not have had an opportunity to go to college. You know, this was in the 1940s when the number of, of adults who had a college degree in the 1940s was only 5%. So um, uh, uh, this, this unexpected opportunity that people had to to go to college, to maybe prepare themselves for a career where they would be working with their mind instead of their hands. Um, uh, one thing I found in researching the book is you look at that generation and so many people gave back to their communities, you know, whether it was, you know, starting the local Little League or, you know, working with disadvantaged people. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of this virtuous cycle, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that um, society gave them an opportunity, I, I mean, these people seriously thought that they owed something back to society. And that, that's not the situation we have now. You know, people, people have to look out for themselves, you know, because that, that, that's how a privatized system works. You know, you know you're responsible for getting ahead. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when your focus becomes paying back that debt so you can finally start adulthood, you know, so you can finally go out and buy a house, so you can finally 
get married and feel like you have enough money to, 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 to live the kind of lifestyle that you want to live. Um, uh, you're not focused on, you're not able to, able to focus on society. You're focused, you're focused on your own needs, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's fascinating that this privatized system came out, developed as, as part of a backlash to the era of protest, era, excuse me, as a backlash to the era of protest on campus. Because, you know, when you think about it, you know, when you're, when you're wedded to paying off a debt, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're going to be more reluctant to go out and protest because you're worried you might lose your job and then how are you going to pay these loans back? And, um, you know, it's really, it's really a system that encourages uh, conformity, you know, people, people not to rebel. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, people can do better. You know, it's funny. I, I wonder about that with my kids, and it turned out my kids, you know, really to do what they wanted to do in life. Both of them had to get master's degrees, which is, which so they, so on one level they did do better than me because I, I only have a bachelor's degree. Um, but you know, it was it was a lot of work and a lot of money to get to that point. It was it was, it was a struggle. Them. And a lot of families, uh, you know, face face these same struggles, and it's it's not you know it's not joyous, you know. There, there was there was a certain amount of joy about you know being the first person in your family to go to college, as opposed to a feeling that's more akin to like desperation of how do I how do I at least cling to the same ladder, to the same step of the ladder that my uh, that my family is on. So I think I think that's how things have changed. Yeah, I want to talk about the resentment that that has been the fallout from that. Um, you know, I I come from a place where in order for me to go out and get my degree and my master's degree, I had to go ahead and assume tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. That, by the way, I had to become like a really well-selling author and have multiple careers to even begin wrestling with. And there was something I I, I try and communicate this, and I I think I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. When I was a kid and when I was preparing to go to college, my family, a, a very, very working class, poor family, were very excited for me to go to college. They were, you know, they constantly talked about being able to climb that ladder, being able to go to college and do all of this. And then the resentment set in years later when, of course, you start to look at ballooning prices. You start looking at, at, at this massive, massive debt. And there was a real, um, a real sour grapes thing that happened. And all of a sudden, my family that was working class started to embrace things like, you know, they started calling themselves rednecks. They started, you know, getting involved in gun culture. All of a sudden, you look up and there are Trump signs everywhere. And you start having this sort of back and forth uh, tension between, quote unquote, elites and, quote unquote, real America. I, w I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how this modern landscape has been shaped by that. Because if you look at the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party, a large part of that yawning gap is the difference between people who went to college and people who did not. There are cultural issues, but they're really predicated on top of these economic issues, right? Yeah, no, no, no absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, that's the biggest fault line that we have right now in our politics. You know, the Democrats becoming the party of college-educated yep. elites. And, you know, what, what's interesting, and there's been a lot of political analysis about this over the last couple of years, is um, uh, as Republicans became the party of, of the white working class, uh, primarily, um, now, you know, what about, what about working class Latinos, for example? Do they side with, you know, the Democratic Party that they traditionally had an allegiance to? 
or do they do they say if this is the party of the college educated it's not it's not really for me anymore and you are certainly seeing some erosion among uh, Latinos in particular and some other ethnic groups to a lesser extent uh, in in that working class demographic um, you know so 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 ab absolutely you know this this uh, this resentment is a driver you know um, uh, that whole thing about how your family was so excited about about you know you getting into college and, and the opportunity uh, that that's that's definitely changed you know um, uh, a couple things I'd note one is uh, it's funny just as my book was coming out you know I was curious you know every every August there are a few books about college today that come out and and this year the other books that are quote competing but not really against mine are books from the far right. And one of them, one of them is by the uh, notorious provocateur Charlie Kirk, and it's called College Scam. And uh, and there's another book that's you know is doing pretty well that's just called simply Don't Go to College, you know. And 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 this is the new attitude, you know. Um, a uh, a researcher did an in-depth study in 2016 um, after the election, you know, trying to drill down into some of the factors that caused Trump to win and. One thing that he found was that the number one determinant of Trump voters was something that he called economic fatalism, which is this idea that, uh, um, you know, that the college, just the whole college scene wasn't for them anymore. The college was, quote, a, a risky gamble, I think was the term that he used, that, uh, uh, that, that it was just best to be avoided. And, um, uh, you know, but unfortunately, that's that's fine, I guess. You know, no, you know, nobody has to go to college, but um, it does seem it does seem among these same working classes, there's a lot of despair that's caused by uh, the results of not having a college education. Both both the you know actual economic results, you know, the difficulties in the job market, and also just the, the more emotional you know feeling of uh, you know, whether they have less work because they don't have a college degree. You know, one thing I talk about a lot in the book is. Uh, the rise of this term deaths of despair um, uh, by these two Princeton economists, Case and Deaton, who studied uh, just really shockingly astronomical rise in suicide, uh, drug overdoses, uh, alcohol-related deaths among people uh, primarily in the white working class. And, and their most recent research that came out a couple of years ago found that these deaths of despair are happening younger and younger. And um, they, they were clear in their research that the number one determinant, again, of this was not having a college degree. And, you know, so, I mean, to my mind, you know, when we talk about all of the problems of higher education in this country, I mean, you know, of course, we focus on student debt and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, well, conservatives focus on what's being taught in the classroom, but, but we focus on those things. But you know, we're not focusing on the on the on the on the on the uh, third of young people who never set foot in a college campus, uh, who are really kind of going off the grid at age 18. You know, uh, the group that you know when you see a mass shooting, the, the the perpetrator tends to be from this group. You know, the group the group that's uh, you know losing people to opioids or suicides in, in their 20s, and you know. You, you can't solve the college problem without solving the non-college problem. I'm kind of curious. Um, 
uh, as far as, uh, you know, when you go like, you're, you're evoking sort of like going to the college football games and having that allegiance to your alma mater, uh, even past college. Um, so a couple different things. One, as you just re- referenced some of the issues we're seeing with the uh, with despair, what do you think is going on in college that alleviates some of those issues? And then I suppose also I'm kind of curious is, does this allegiance that we're devoting and developing in this crucial time of our lives as college students, does that somehow inform the way uh, cheering for the Republicans and Democrats is, is become a game now where we have to dunk on people whenever someone's got to lose in this equation? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I think if you're seeing, if you're seeing uh, statistics showing that Democrats are now the party of, of college-educated people, uh, it raises a real question, which is, you know, is there something about going to college that makes you become a Democrat or makes you become more makes you become more liberal, and to some degree, yes, I, I would say so. You know, um, uh, you know, when you go to a college nowadays, uh, you're going to be around a more diverse group of people. You know, not not just racially diverse, although certainly that, but just people from different parts of parts of the country, different parts of the world. You're going to be going to school with, you know, Muslims and going to school with people from you know South Asia and and um, uh, you know, and, and and remember the I mean the idea behind liberal education, which you know was so heavily promoted after World War II. Part of it was to promote tolerance and international understanding. I mean that's that's what's supposed to happen. And uh, you know now now to the right, obviously this has all gone too far. You know that, that it's gone over the edge when you're you know the the way that LGBT, LGBTQ rights are or uh, you know the, the way you know, the, you know you know they get crazy over pronouns or something, but but I, mean, I think I think there's there's no question. You know I mean I mean the idea one of the ideas of higher education is to promote critical thinking and um, you know I, I think when you look at the fact that sure we're a society that's plagued by conspiracy theories right now, but you know the the worst conspiracy theories like QAnon, which is probably the worst and the most ridiculous, or, or uh, competing perhaps with Donald Trump's big lie about election fraud. The, these conspiracy theories are circulating among the Republican Party, which is the party of not college-educated people, which is um, uh, word exposed to, you know, the, you know, a place where they can develop critical thinking. You know, I mean, and this is so important. I mean, why... Why is America failing on climate, or until this week, you know, hopefully we're turning the corner, but why for so long has America failed on climate change? And, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of the rejection of science in this country start, starts with several decades of rejecting college among one political party. So at some point, at some point it's, it's just not that they think college is bad, but they think that what comes out of college, which is, you know, research and science, is is bad, you know, and it, it, it creates a cycle, you know, all of a sudden uh, scientists, and we all know scientists by nature tend not to be the most political people in the world historically, um, you know, I mean, there's exceptions obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, a lot of scientists are non-political, but today, today to be a scientist is, is kind of a political act, and that's why you saw things like the March for Science, you know, during the Trump years, because it becomes this cycle where if people, if people on the right are going to be attacking scientists, that's only going to drive scientists more to the left, right? And, and that's how you, that's how you get a, you know, that's how political differences become 
a, a chasm, you know, a Grand Canyon, which is what which is what we have now. Yeah, and on that note, I, so I've, I've been in academia now for 16 years, and there's been this myth that it's a leftist institution. You know, we're we're on campus, Nick, and we're just sharing our pronouns and just, you know, <laughs> burning American flags left and right. But the truth is that it's not at all a leftist institution. In fact, you're learning how to go out into the capitalist world, work in an office. I mean, to, to be honest, a lot of the tolerance that you're being taught is how to interact with teammates and, and, and people out in a professional environment. This idea that it's a leftist environment is an invention of a lot of really, really right-wing or libertarian people who have attacked the institution, scientists, experts, you name it, for years in order to hide what they've done. And, you know, everybody from tobacco executives to fossil fuel companies, you name it. And, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the fights that have resol resulted as a part of this. You bring up Scott Walker, who, you know, a lot of us think about as just this sort of like really, really lame, watered down, milk toast uh, presidential candidate for the GOP who just got rolled over. But in fact, somebody like Walker did incredible damage to higher education and played a massive role in all of this. I was hoping you could talk about this attack and how the Republican Party has gone after this in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, um, you know, I mean, I mean, this has really built slowly, slowly over a couple decades, because initially what you saw was just le less support from Republicans for, for funding, you know, higher education, uh, which, you know, played a key part in, in, in the tuition rise of the last 30 or 40 years. And what's really changed since around 2010, you know, the era, the, that big wave election in the era of the Tea Party, uh, which, which was when Scott Walker got elected governor of Wisconsin, um, is, is you've seen, you've seen governors and, and other top Republicans on the state level really move to exert more day-to-day -day control over what happens at universities. And, and, and obviously, they have, they have a fantastic lever for this, which is, generally speaking, they appoint university trustees. In fact, in fact, it's funny, in North Carolina, which is another battleground state where they're constantly fighting over academic issues, and, and uh, in that state, you know, they went, they went crazy and elected a Democratic governor, right, Roy Cooper. And uh, the legislature, immediately before Cooper could take office, switched control of the trustees to, to the legislature. So, uh, uh, in fact, uh, I think one of the campus newspapers in North Carolina did a survey last year, and 17 of the 24 trustees they looked at were Republicans. Six, six they couldn't figure out what their party identification was. I think one was one was a Democrat. I mean, um, and um, so so some of the areas that have come under uh, greater attack, you know, certainly tenure because um, you know, they wanted they want to be able to fire professors who they think are too liberal or who are critical of Republican policies. Um, uh, down in Florida, Ron DeSantis, who's made a big deal about lots of stuff with higher education, has even gone after accreditation and you know, wants to make it harder for universities to get accredited. Um, uh, in North Carolina, you had um, the trustees moving to shut down three, three research centers at their universities. Uh, and, and these centers looked into poverty, environmental issues. The, the poverty center was run by somebody who was also a part-time newspaper columnist who used this columnist to criticize the used this column to criticize the Republican Party, and uh, so they retaliated by closing his, his center down. Um, 
you know, North Carolina is where you saw the big controversy over, over Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, who got hired as, as chair of their journalism department and uh, with the promise of tenure. And uh, and all of a sudden, trustees stepped in and said, not so fast. And, and you know, they did offer her tenure in the end, but by then she was so soured by the experience, she'd taken a job at Howard University. And uh, um, uh, uh, so... <clears throat> Uh, you know, re really, it's become a battleground. You know, um, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is, I think, taking taking some of this to the next level with trying to um, crack down on on uh, what can be taught about race in classrooms. I mean, I mean, obviously, we're seeing this in the in the lower grades in K through 12, but you know, we're also seeing this in college. Uh, you know, uh, he also uh, pushed through this survey, right, where people's uh, about. Uh, uh, Political diversity, you know, that he wants to know people's political views uh, to see if there's a diversity, uh, diversity of ideas problem at these campuses, which which really, you know, just smacks of the worst McCarthyism type tactics, and um, that that's that's where we're at, and and uh, you know, I think <clears throat> I, I think I think Republicans have really reached the conclusion that their future as a as a movement hinges on education, that if Education continued the way it was. Um, you know, younger people would uh, uh, be moving more towards tolerance and, and diversity. I mean, you know, we saw within a generation how acceptance of, of gay marriage, for example, just skyrocketed, and, and, and this was beginning to happen in other areas. I, I think I think the George Floyd protest marches were a huge trigger. I think I think conservatives were appalled by the size and the scope of those marches. And, and they felt that the impetus of that was coming out of classrooms, and um, they, they 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 feel it's a matter of survival for them, and you know um, that's why they're trying to ban uh, anti-racism teaching, they're trying to ban you know books in, in, in school libraries. Um, uh, it's it's really it's really the battleground right now, and it's only going to get more intense in the next year or two, I think. I'm kind of curious if you take a, a macro look at, you know, universities and their roles in, in the United States for over enough time, you know, you come across sort of very specific touchstones that would cause major shifts in the policy of the schools and the experience of the students. I'm wondering, uh, do any of those sort of stand out to you as you're thinking about your book and as it's coming out now, uh, certain ones that you thought, oh, like this, I didn't even realize that this was a major event that really shifted a lot of, uh, a lot of ways they do things. Um, well, no. Not necessarily, although I would say, you know, I mean, to me, like a real aha moment was the realization that the, the, those George Floyd protests in 2020, I mean, they were they were nothing like any other kind of racial protest before. I mean, you know, on, on the right, you know, this, this was just a continuation of, you know, the, the, the long hot summers of the 1960s in Chicago, I mean, in Detroit and in Newark. And, and this was nothing like that. In fact, the... Um, the George Floyd protests were a rebellion of the college educated. You know, a uh, um, a University of Michigan uh, sociologist who whose specialty is researching protests did the most most in depth survey of who was going to these marches, and she found that at some of the big marches in D.C. and in uh, New York and elsewhere, 82 percent of the people protesting had college degrees. Um, you know, and, and you were seeing certainly large white. Participation in these protests, even even the black protesters, uh, majority of them, majority of them have college degrees. Like, you know, more than three times the rate of the black population attending college. So, so um, uh, I think I think that's what really 
sealed the link for Republicans that uh, this is what we're going to have to deal with um, if, if we don't if we don't clamp down on education and what what our kids are learning. Well, one last question. Movement. Yeah. One last question before we have to let you go. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be an absolute failure of an interviewer if I didn't uh, hit on the last part of this subtitle. How do we fix it? What do we do? Well, first of all, you know, let, let's let's turn the battleship around. I mean, it's not easy, but you know, if, if you just start by the by the, the philosophy of going back to where we were at in the '40s, '50s, and '60s of thinking, how can we make this a, a public good? How can, how can we what can, we, what can we do as a, a society and as, as a government in supposedly the richest country in the world? You know, how do we make this a priority so that most of the burden is not falling on families and, 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 and people are not having to borrow tens of thousands of dollars to do this? That, that, that we agree that society benefits from education, you know, benefits from having a, a better educated workforce in, 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 in that sense, and, and benefits. Uh, in terms of civics, you know, from having having better educated voters and, and participants in society, uh, so so it starts, I think, with turning that turning that battleship around, and, and you know, and uh, uh, you know, if we can do that, maybe we'll find more support for some of these proposals by by Bernie Sanders or or, or Elizabeth Warren or, or Camilla Jayapal that that uh, would look at things like taxing financial transactions or taxing wealth. Uh, you know, and using using that money to make public university education free or low cost, and and, and, and these plans, um, to be clear, you know, um, these proposals don't just stop there because we need to have you know free trade schools too, and and, and other types of apprenticeship or internship or other learning opportunities. Again, for that 63% that's that's maybe not getting a bachelor's degree, to to get them into the system where um, they still have opportunities after age 18. To better themselves and advance themselves. Um, one one other outside the box idea that I explore in the book is, uh, you know, I'd really like to see the government get behind a universal gap year at age 18, because you know that's where we're losing our young people, and and that's you know whether whether you're college bound, you know, all the pressure to to decide everything about you know where you're going to go and what you're going to major in and how much money to borrow, and a lot of bad decisions are made by 18 year olds and their families because of because of that pressure, and, uh, and and all the 18 year olds, like I said, that are just dropping off the grid if they if they finish high school and don't go to college, um, here's a chance to give people an extra year to not only benefit society by working on conservation or working in schools or or, or what have you, but also also to to find their own aptitude better, what they really want to do, and I think most importantly is you know bring people together from different backgrounds, you know the the military used to do this in World War II or Korea. People from all over the country who wouldn't mingle and otherwise, you know, served in units together. And uh, uh, we certainly don't want another war, but we do want we do want the benefits of people from, you know, what what we call Red America and Blue America right now, um, getting to know each other and realizing there's actually a lot more they have in common than uh, focusing on the differences between people. All right, everybody, we've been talking with Will Bunch, a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of the new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Will, I got to tell you, when you told me you were writing this book, I was just absolutely so excited. I think it's crucial, and uh, you, you nailed it, just absolutely nailed it. So congrats on that. Where can the good people find you? 
Uh, well, um, they can find me at the Inquirer, uh, 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 Inquirer.com. That's where my columns are located. Um, folks should sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is free. All you have to do is go to Inquirer.com backslash bunch and just enter your email and you're signed up. You get it every Tuesday. And, uh, you know, look for the book, you know, bookshop.org or ebook or uh, any any of the many sites that you can buy books or you can uh, even even listen to it on Audible uh, or uh, download the Kindle. So there's lots of ways to read the book. I hope, I hope people are going to check it out. Thanks so much, Will. All right, everybody. That was Will Bunch again from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of After the Ivory Tower Falls. Um, I, I was really happy we, had, we, we were able to get Will back on and uh, talk about this. I, I still think that college in particularly, who gets to go, who doesn't get to go, who gets the jobs after, who doesn't. I, I, I think it's one of the hidden drivers of this modern moment, like a um, huge, huge thing that we don't talk about enough. I mean, I, I agree. I feel like, first of all, it's it's the bad enough when you see the scandals of all those you know rich Hollywood types yeah. who are paying. Well, to there's their a kids. reason for that, right? The wealthiest of the wealthy are still trying to game the system. Absolutely. Right. And then though, like, and what makes me maybe more disenchanted is that I'm not sure that you're really going to learn things that you need to know going out into the real world. Like, for instance. You know, are you going to learn the things like social media marketing or like that, which, which I've been to a number of schools and asked and quiz them because that's in my business now. And they don't have curriculum for that. You know, I, I was an art major. And even at that level, like I, I, no one taught me how to make art. They just kind of had these classes. We showed up. We did it. It was like so I, even at that point, I'm almost like disenchanted by the whole notion of like maybe you, you don't need to go to college and there's a lot better pursuits you can have if, if you want to be part of the capitalist society and actually make money. I mean, I don't know. I, you, you, were, you are a professor. You've been in the trenches, so I don't. I don't want to shit all over what you're doing. I, I I think there is a problem, and this was an aspect of it that we couldn't get into at will because obviously we had like a, a restriction of time. There is a problem in terms of uh, academia that has a hard time trying to understand how to evolve, right, and and what to do next, and and. A lot of what has happened, unfortunately, is I don't even think academics have a real understanding of what college is. To go to college, you you now go, and everybody thinks it's this leftist institution. Basically, you step foot on campus, everybody's giving you their pronouns and burning bras or whatever. What college actually is, is it's, it's job training. It's teaching you how to join the capitalistic system, how to behave, how to go in, how to have the skills that corporations want you to have. And... To be honest, I think a lot of people within the academy don't always understand what they're a part of. This is something that was hard for me, Nick, and, and we've talked about this a little bit off recording before. It was a lot for me to start to understand our modern political system and to start to understand that my role in the academy was training people towards that as opposed to, I don't know, creating some sort of a leftist counter revolution or something. There is a lot wrong with college, a lot wrong with college. And if we could get to the point where you didn't have to go to college or, you know, you could go to trade schools as long as they're not being dominated by these corporations and, and these things like if we could get to that or I don't know if we could just, 
give people free public education. It would probably make a big difference, but we have to get the for-profit sector out of academia. Yeah, and I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not, uh, I was not an art, artist and romantic and and, uh, and 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 wanted to use college as the experience of, you know, going from being in a protected environment where your parents are, you know, controlling your lives to that next stage. That is important to have a safe area where you can be somewhere with like-minded individuals and learn and open your mind. I, I get that. Um, but then at some point there is that preparation you, you're mentioning it needs to take place. And by the way, we you know you know the the thing in the the elephant in the room is like athletics. We we didn't really talk about here. We had a, another guest on a while back talking about that. But that's a whole other layer which really taints a lot of the process too. Well, and it's it's completely infected the entire thing. And just to give like a brief little bite of history, and this might uh, sound relevant to you, Nick, uh, particularly for what you're getting ready to enter into. One of the reasons why the right goes after academia the way that it does is because in the past, before the counterculture rise in the 1960s and 70s, the college was supposed to be taking the place of the absent parent, right? You were supposed to have your kid, you raised the kid up in your environment, and then you sent them off to college. But don't worry, they're not going to get a bunch of goofy thoughts and start questioning their parents and what's going on you know, around them. That changed beginning in the 60s. And then we had like this brief little moment where uh, a new sort of revolutionary idea started coming up and people started pushing back. And then Nick, immediately the wealthy were like, no, we do not want that in college. This now needs to be job training. This now needs to be, again, very capitalistic focused. And here's the problem. It wasn't enough to simply turn it into a for-profit regime, which, of course, college football, college athletics is, is the fuel and the engine of all of this. But now, with the reactionary right, Nick, they want to recreate the absent parent at college. They want to create, again, this sort of wound that they keep their kids in throughout their entire lives so they'll never question their parents or the the lives that they grew up in. I mean, I, listen, it's threatening if a, if a kid comes to you, your kid, and is smarter than you. You know, <laughs> it's a threatening thing, and I, I get it. So, uh, but man, the, the, the reaction, once you get beyond that and what you see from these school boards and all these things, and CRT is, is, is truly frightening and is going to be the downfall of our society. Oh, it's, it's, it's a big, big problem. Uh, and, and listen, so is this Trump stuff. But I think on Friday's episode of The Weekender, I think we, we're going to venture into some other territory, unless everything absolutely blows up in the next couple of days, which the way things are working, they will. So we'll cover that. We'll cover a lot of stuff. Thank you, Will Bunch, for coming on. Uh, that, that book is After the Ivory Tower Falls. Really, really good. Uh, if you need us before the next episode, you can find Nick. You can hear me, SMH. You can find me, at JY Saxton. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe.